Welcome, friends and seekers, to the Gospel Inc. podcast, where ink meets inspiration and stories of faith come to life. I am your host, David Green, and while I'm not a preacher, I'm here to guide you on a refreshing journey through the pages of hope and salvation. Each week, we delve into different chapters of the Bible, unpacking the wisdom, uncovering the truths, and exploring the life-saving message within. Together, we will navigate the rich mosaic of God's Word, allowing it to illuminate our paths, enrich our spirits, and deepen our understanding of faith and life. Imagine navigating the complete life with the Bible as your compass, painting each day with the strokes of grace, love, and truth. Here at Gospel Inc., that is not just a dream. It is our shared journey. So why wait? Embark on an enlightening adventure with us. Let your spirit be stirred and your heart be filled with the warmth and ultimate truth. Stay tuned and stay blessed as we unfold Byron Hughes of the Gospel, only here on Gospel Inc. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gospel Inc. I'm your host, David Green, and today we are diving deep into a chapter of the Bible that paints a majestic and awe-inspiring picture of the culmination of history and the ultimate victory of good over evil. We're exploring Revelations 19, a passage that holds profound insights and lessons for believers navigating the complexities of our modern-day world. As we unpack these verses, I invite you to journey with me and discover the hope the warnings, and the timeless truths embedded in John's prophetic visions. So whether you're on your commute, taking a break, or dedicating time for personal reflections, let's immerse ourselves in the transformative power of God's Word. Welcome to Gospel Inc. So first we're going to start at verses 1 through 3 in Revelations chapter 19. Here's what it says. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So what we see here is the celestial praise. The scene shifts from the dissolution of Babylon to the heavenly realms. The great multitude, possibly representing all the redeemed, indicate a vast number beyond count. Their collective voices resonate with praise, signaling a monumental event in the heavenly narrative. Then we see God's righteous judgment. The recurring cry of hallelujah underscores a celebratory tone, marking God's righteous judgment on Babylon, the great prostitute. The multitude recognizes that God's actions, while severe, are always just and true. And then the end of the corrupter. Babylon, which one lured nations into immorality, has now faced divine retribution. The image of her smoke rising forever and ever signifies the finality of God's judgment and the permanent end of her wicked influence. And then vindication for the faithful. God avenging the blood of his servants emphasizes his role as the ultimate defender of his people. Despite facing persecution and even martyrdom, believers can rest in the assurance that God brings justice on their behalf. So my takeaways from these verses include the three following things. Praise in the midst of judgment. Even in the context of judgment, there's a call for praise. This underscores the importance of recognizing God's hand in all things, trusting that his actions, though beyond our understanding, are always anchored in righteousness. Then it's the unyielding justice. God's judgment on Babylon is a testament to his unwavering commitment to justice. Systems and entities that perpetrate evil and uh, lead others astray will eventually face their reckoning. Then the eternal perspective, the transient nature of worldly allure and the power is contrasted with the enduring nature of God's justice and reign. The momentary success of the wicked entities are nothing compared to eternal victory of God's kingdom. 
And maybe I'll walk one more on there, right? The solidarity of the redeemed. The collective voices of the multitude suggest a unified body for the believers, reinforcing the ideal of the global church standing together in praise and recognition of our holy God. To summarize this message in Revelations chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, we are reminded of the ultimate victory of God over the forces of evil. While the war may at times seem under the sway of wicked powers, God's divine plan is always in motion, leading to the eventual downfall of evil and the exaltation of righteousness. Believers are encouraged to stand firm in their faith, knowing that they are part of a vast multitude that will one day join in eternal praise of our victorious King. Next, we're going to move down to verse 4, the heavenly worship. Here's what it says. In the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on his throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, the elders and the living creatures, both the 24 elders and the four living creatures, have been consistent figures in John Revelations, often seen in positions of worship. The elders generally represent the redeemed humanity, possibly the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, symbolizing the entirety of God's people for both covenants. The four living creatures, full of eyes and with distinct forms, signify aspects of God's nature are ceaseless in their worship. Then we have profound worship, right? Their falling down indicates a posture of humility, reverence, and utmost respect. The worship is not just a mere ritual or gesture, but stems from a profound understanding and acknowledgement of God's nature and acts. And then we see the unified praise, the words amen and hallelujah captures the essence of their worship. Amen is an affirmation often used to express agreement, certainty, or truth. Here it emphasizes the elders and creatures complete agreement with God's judgment. Hallelujah, a joyful explanation of praise, underscores their rejoicing in God's righteous acts. So here are my takeaways. Continual worship, regardless of events unfolding on earth, worship in heaven is continuous. The elders and living creatures, despite having witnessed countless scenes and revelations, never grow weary of praising God, emphasizing the inexcusable nature of his worthiness. Then total agreement with God, the amen, suggests that every action of God, no matter how incomprehensible to us, aligns with his nature of justice, love, and righteousness. The heavenly beings and their wisdom and proximity to God wholeheartedly affirm his judgments. And then joy in God's righteous acts, the word hallelujah is not just a chant, but an expression of deep joy and satisfaction in God's righteous deeds, even in judgment. There is joy because it stems from God's perfect nature and sets the stage for a new heaven and a new earth, free from sin and rebellion. In wrapping up this message, we see the unwavering and ceaseless worship of God by beings who have a profound understanding of his nature. Their worship serves as a model for believers, encouraging us to approach God with humility, reverence, and joy, trusting in his perfect judgments and celebrating his unchanging character. Next, we're going to go down to verse 5, a call to praise. Here's what it says. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Now, what we see is a voice from the throne. The source of this voice is significant, emerging directly from the throne. It implies a direct command or exhortation from the very heart of heavenly authority, possibly from God himself or one of his close emissaries. Then you see a universal call to worship. Call isn't exclusive. It's addressed to all of God's servants, encompassing everyone who serves him, regardless of their status, role, or background. 
The distinction between great and small accentuates their inclusivity, right? The emphasis that no one is exempt from this divine call to worship. And then the reverent fear. The boy addresses those who fear God. This isn't about terror, but reverent awe or a profound respect for God's majesty, power, and holiness. So my takeaways from this verse include the following. God desires our praise. The divine call to worship underscores the importance and value God places on the adoration and praise. It's an integral aspect of our relationship with him, one that he cherishes and desires from all of his creation. And equality in worship. In God's eyes, all are equal when it comes to worship, whether one holds a high position or is considered lowly in earthly terms. In the realm of praise, all stand on equal ground. This is a beautiful reminder of the inherent worth and dignity God bestows upon each of his creations. And then the depth of the reverence, right? True worship springs from a heart that recognizes and reveres God's holiness. A heart that fears God in the sense of deep respect and awe will naturally overflow in genuine worship. So summing up this message, we are confronted with a powerful and inclusive call to worship, merging directly from the throne of God. It serves as a reminder of the central role that praise uh, plays in our relationship with the divine. Regardless of our earthly status or position, we are all beckoned to approach the throne with hearts full of reverence and mouths full of praise, recognize the unmatched majesty and holiness of our God. Now we're going to move down to verses six through eight, the marriage supper of the lamb. Here's what it says. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her to wear. Now, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So what do we see here? The celestial multitude. John again here is a vast chorus from heaven of immense power and awe. The descriptors like the roar of the rushing waters and the loud peals of thunder depict an overwhelming and all-encompassing sound, symbolizing the universal and a monumental nature of the occasion. Then we see the reign of the Almighty, the exclamation, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. It's a trumpet proclamation of God's eternal and sovereign rule. It is a declaration of his unmatched power and authority over all creation. Then we see the wedding imagery. The narrative shifts to the wedding of the lamb. The lamb, uh, consistently identified as Jesus Christ in Revelation, is now pictured in a wedding scenario, a significant biblical metaphor for the intimate relationship between Christ and the church. Then the bride's preparation. The bride, representing the collective body of believers or the church, has made herself ready. This speaks to the spiritual preparedness and purity of believers, emphasized by the fine linen, bright and clean, that she is adorned with. Then the symbolism of fine linen, right? The passage interprets its own symbolism by stating that the fine linen is representation of the righteous acts of God's holy people. This underscores the importance of righteous living among believers, reflecting their inner transformation and commitment to God. So here are my takeaways. First, we see triumphant celebration. The, the celestial chorus serves as a testament to the joy and triumph in heaven. The culmination of God's redemptive plan with the union of Christ and the church is a movement of unparalleled celebration and the intimate relationship. The wedding metaphor powerfully depicts the intimate and eternal bond between Christ and believers. It signifies unity, love, commitment, and the culmination of God's promises. 
then we see active preparation. The emphasis on the bride making herself ready suggests that believers have an active role in their spiritual journey. While salvation is a gift, the sanctification process requires active engagement, resulting in righteous acts that please God. Concluding the message from Revelations chapter 19, verses 6 through 8, we witness a heavenly celebration of God's sovereignty and the anticipated union of Christ with his church. It's a call for believers to actively prepare for this divine union, to live righteously, and to eagerly await the fulfillment of God's promises. The imagery of the wedding supper reminds us of the joy, intimacy, and eternal bond that awaits those who remain faithful to the Lamb. Next, we're going to move down to verse 9, the blessed invitation. Here's what it says. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So we see the angel's exploration, right? Once again, an angel plays a pivotal role in guiding John and highlighting key revelations. The command to write this emphasizes the immense significance and timeless nature of the message being conveyed. Then we have the blessed invitation. The declaration that those invited to the wedding supper are blessed conveys the privilege and joy associated with this call. This isn't merely an earthly celebration. It's a divine feast commemorating the union of uh, Christ and his church, an event that defines the climax of human history and God's redemptive plan. Then we have affirmation of truth. The statements, these are the true words of God, serves as a divine seal of authenticity and accuracy. It's a reassurance for readers throughout the age that the vision and promises are trustworthy and will come to pass. So here are my takeaways. Privilege of the call. The invitation to the wedding supper is more than just an attendance at an event. It is an invitation into eternal fellowship with Christ, into the inner sanctum of God's kingdom. This emphasizes the unparalleled honor and joy of being in intimate communion with the Lamb, or Jesus Christ. The responsibility to respond is number two. An invitation demands a response. Believers are reminded of the importance of accepting this call, preparing for it, and living in anticipation of the grand event. And last, unwavering trust in God's word. The angel's affirmation underscores the reliability and truth of God's promises. In a world filled with uncertainties, believers can anchor their hope in the true words of God, confident that his promises are unfailing. Summing up the message of Revelations uh, verse 9, we encounter a profound declaration of blessedness that awaits those invited to the grandest celebration in human history. The angel's words encourage believers to cherish this invitation, prepare their hearts, and live in eager anticipation, always trusting in the infallible and true words of God. Next, we're going to move down to verse 10, worship God alone. Here's what it says. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So what we see here is John's impulse. Overwhelmed by the revelations and the majesty of the vision, John's immediate reaction is to fall at the feet of the messenger angel to worship him. This impulse is a testament to the grandeur of the revelation and the profound impact it had on John. But then we see the angel's rebuke. The angel swiftly and sternly corrects John's action. The emphasis on don't do that is a clear directive that worship is reserved for God alone. The angel identifies himself as a fellow servant, emphasizing that even heavenly beings are in the service to God and are not to be objects of worship. Then we see the spirit of prophecy. The angel affirms that the prophecies and revelations are grounded in the testimony of Jesus Christ. The spirit of prophecy that testifies of Jesus signifies the Holy Spirit's role in revealing Christ's truth throughout the ages. Here are my takeaways. 
First, guarding against misplaced worship. John's reaction to serve is a cautionary tale. In moments of spiritual awe or revelation, there's a risk of directing worship towards the messenger rather than the source. Believers must remain vigilant in ensuring that their worship is directed solely to God. Then unity and service. The angel's self-identification as a fellow servant is a poignant reminder that all of creation, whether celestial or terrestrial, is in service to God alone. This is a shared purpose, binds all of God's creations in a cosmic tapestry of worship and obedience. Then the centrality of Christ. The reference to the testimony of Jesus underscores the centrality of Christ and God's redemptive plan. Every prophecy, every revelation, and every divine message ultimately points to Jesus, the Lamb of God and the Savior of the world. So wrapping up this message from Revelations chapter 19, verse 10, we are reminded of the paramount importance of directing our worship exclusively to God. Even in the midst of overwhelming spiritual experiences, the focus must remain on the creator and not on the created. The verse also reiterates the pivotal role of Jesus in the narrative of redemption, urging believers to anchor their faith and hope in him. Now moving down to verses 11 through 16, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here's what it says. I saw in heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will roll them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So what we're seeing here is the heavenly vision. John sees heaven open, signifying a significant divine revelation. The white horse symbolizes victory, righteousness, and purity. Now we see the writer's identity. The writer, described as faithful and true, unmistakably refers to Jesus Christ. His dual attributes of faithfulness and truthfulness underscores his unwavering character and mission. Then we see justice and judgment. Christ's righteous judgment is emphasized. Unlike earthly rulers, his judgments and actions are rooted in perfect justice. Then we see symbols of majesty. His fiery eyes depicted penetrating insight and omniscience. The many crowns signify supreme authority and dominion over all kingdoms. Then we have mystery and revelation. The undisclosed name adds a layer of divine mystery, while the revealed name, Word of God, connects him to the Gospel of John's introduction, emphasizing his eternal existence and role in creation. Then we see the armies of heaven. These celestial forces symbolize the heavenly host that accompanies Christ, signifying his role as the supreme commander of all. Then the symbols of authority and judgment, the sharp sword from his mouth emphasizes the power of his word, while the iron scepter denotes his unyielding rule. Treading the winepress symbolizes the judgment he brings upon the wicked. And the ultimate title, the declaration, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is a profound affirmation of Christ's unmatched supremacy. So here are my takeaways. The supreme majesty of Christ. The vision reaffirms Christ's unparalleled status in the heavenly hierarchy. He is not merely a savior, but also the ultimate judge, ruler, and king. Then we see divine authority and righteousness. Christ's role is characterized by perfect justice and righteousness. Believers can trust in his judgments and leadership, knowing they stem from pure truth and love. Power of the word. The imagery of the sword emanating from Christ's mouth 
underlines the transformative and judgmental power of his words, reminding believers of the potency of the scripture. Including this message from Revelations chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, we are presented with a majestic vision of Christ as the reigning king and the divine judge. These verses beckon believers to recognize, to honor, and to submit to his supreme authority, resting in the assurance of his just and righteous rule. The depiction serves as a powerful reminder of Christ's multifaceted role in God's redemptive plan and his eventual victory over all forces of darkness. Next, we're going to move down to verses 17 through 18, the great supper of God. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in midheaven, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who set on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. So what we see is the angel in the sun. The angel's positioning in the sun is significant, representing a point of prominence and authority. The sun, being a source of light, signifies clarity and revelation. Then we have the Great Supper. Contrary to the earlier mentioned wedding supper of the Lamb, which is a joyous celebration for the redeemed, this supper is grim. It is a symbolic representation of the impending judgment of the rebellious and wicked. Then we have universal judgment. The wide range of individuals, from kings to slaves, highlights that judgment is all-encompassing. Rank, power, or status does not exempt anyone from God's righteous judgment. Then we see birds as agents of judgment. Birds feasting on the fallen is a vivid, somber image used in scriptures to signify defeat and disgrace. Here they serve as agents to execute God's judgment. So, once again, what are my takeaways? Inescapable justice, right? The imagery serves as a sobering reminder that God's justice, though delayed, is inevitable and impartial. No one, irrespective of the earthly statue, can evade it. The duality of God's nature. These verses, juxtaposed against the earlier verses on the wedding supper, emphasizes the dull nature of God's dealings with humanity. Blessing for the faithful and judgment for the rebellious. And the urgency of repentance. The vivid imagery of the Great Supper serves as a dire warning urging individuals to turn from their wicked ways and embrace the salvation offered by God. Concluding this message uh, from Revelations chapter 19, verses 17 through 18, we're confronted with a stark depiction of God's impending judgment on the unrepentant. The grim scene underscores the gravity of your rebellion against God and the severe consequences that await. For believers, it is a call to evangelize, urging others to heed the warning and turn to the redeeming grace of Christ. It is a sobering reminder of the transient nature of earthly powers and the eternal implications of one's stance towards God. Next, we're going to go to verses 19 through 21, which I call the defeat of the beast and its army. Here's what it says. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with swords coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. What we see here is the ultimate confrontation, good versus evil. The beast, representing the anti-Christian forces and the allied powers, gather for a final confrontation against Christ, the rider on the horse, and his heavenly army. This epitomizes right, the age-old battle between good and evil. Then we see the swift defeat, 
The narrative doesn't describe a prolonged battle. The beast and the false prophet, uh, significant antagonists in the tribulations, are quickly and decisively captured. Their swift defeat underscores Christ's overwhelming power and authority. Then we see the deceptive power of the false prophet. The role of the false prophet in leading many astray through miraculous signs is highlighted. His collaboration with the beast and his role in promoting the beast's worship underlines the dangers of deceptive uh, spiritual influences. Then we see judgment. The beast and the false prophet face a terrifying end as they are thrown alive into the lake of burning sulfur, indicating the severity of the punishment. The rest of the rebellious army meets their end by the powerful word of Christ, as symbolized by the sword from his mouth. Then the completion of the judgment. The birds, which were earlier summoned for the great supper, now feast on the remains, signifying the completion of God's judgment. So here are my takeaways. The inevitability of divine victory. No matter the magnitude of the forces arrayed against God, victory is assured. This provides immense hope and confidence to believers. Then we have the pearls of spiritual deception. The role of the false prophet reminds believers to be discerning. Not every miraculous sign is from God, and discernment is essential to avoid being led astray. Then the finality of God's judgment, the fate of the beast, the fate of the false prophet and their followers serve as a stern warning of the, you know, nonstop nature of God's judgment against the unrepentance and the rebellion. If you rebel, you're going to hell. Wrapping up this message from Revelations chapter 19, verses 19 through 21, the passage reveals the culmination of history's spiritual warfare. The decisive defeat of evil underscores God's sovereignty and the futility of opposing him. For believers, it serves as both a comfort and a call to remain vigilant, steadfast, and discerning in a world filled with deceptive spiritual influences. As we conclude our exploration of Revelations 19, I hope these verses have left an indelible mark on your heart as they have on mine. The majesty of Christ, the finality of God's judgment, and the triumphant victory over evil serve as a powerful reminders of our calling, our hope, and our eternal destiny. My prayer is that we remain anchored in these truths, no matter the storms we face in life. Remember, our journey with God is an ongoing one, and His Word is our guiding light. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Gospel Inc. I'm David Green, and until next time, may you remain rooted in the gospel, always seeking the ink of God's wisdom on the pages of your life. Today, as we delve deeply into the chapter of the Bible, let our hearts be tuned to the resounding echoes of divine truth and hope that transcends the ages and whispers fervently to our spirits every day. In the swirling torments of time, marked by uncertainty and confusion and the shadows of persecution, let us anchor ourselves in the unshakable reality of Christ's sovereignty. He reigns supreme, his authority is unyielding, and his love is unfailing. Remember, he is the triumphant king who holds the keys to life and death, whose resurrected power pulses in our veins of creation, promising us victory over the grave and the gift of eternal life. As we tread the pages that unfold the visions granted to John on the rugged terrain of island of Patmos, let us not forget the context of this revelation. Patmos, a place of isolation and exile, mirrors the depths and despair and abandonment. Yet, it is here, amid the barren landscape, that the radiant light of God's presence pierces the veil of darkness, illuminating the path of hope, assurance, and eternal promises. Here it states, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the key to death and Hades. In the face of towering 
rulers and oppressive rulers. John, the apostle of love, received the unyielding words of Christ, a message of flame with resolute courage and unyielding victory. These wars breathed life and resilience into the fledging Christian community, battered by the tempest and persecution and fear of the overarching empire. But here he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written because the time is near. Let this blessing permeate our very beings, infusing us with the strength and fortitude as we navigate the pathway of our lives. May the profound words and visions of revelations fill our spirits with unwavering assurance in Christ's ultimate victory and eternal reign. In the mosaic of divine revelations, may we glimpse the celestial tapestry of God's unending love and faithfulness. As we close this reflection, let us carry forth the flame of hope ignited by the resplendent visions of John, allowing its light to guide our steps, dispel our fears, and deepen our unwavering allegiance to our risen Lord. I pray that our hearts may ever be strengthened, our spirits ever emboldened, and our lives ever anchored in the boundless ocean of God's eternal paradise. In precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I say amen. I want to close today with a simple prayer. If you would, please close your eyes and bow your head with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins today, and I invite you to come into my heart and come into my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, remember, saying this prayer or any other prayer will not save you by itself. It is the genuine faith and conviction in your heart that God cares about. The words are simply a way for you to express your faith and commitment to God. The true salvation experience comes from truly believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, feeling remorse for your sins, and living a life that shows commitment to following His teachings. Now, I want to thank you, right? Thank you for following with me today, for listening to my words. If you found my content of value, I invite you to click the subscribe button. Over the next few weeks, our journey will further unfold into the chapters of Revelations. Your insights are important to me. If there's anything you disagree with or would like to share feedback on, please don't hesitate to leave me a comment. In future episodes, I plan to review comments on the podcast because engaging discussion often leads to deeper understanding. And perhaps God has granted you insight into his divine promises that could enlighten us all. Wishing you a blessed and joyful week.